Hello, I'm Stephen Buckley, and we're in a series going long through the central storyline of the Bible, building a biblical worldview in the process. Shortly, we're diving into Genesis 3, but first and today, we're turning to the order and economy of mankind. After Genesis 2, we took a detour to step back and view the total sum of reality and its ordering of activities. We looked at the order of Yahweh, at the order of the field of play, and then last time we turned to the order of the players. Field and players is worldview language. And we studied angels and demons, and today, continuing the order of the players, we're concentrating on man. Everywhere that we turn, a swipe or scroll, in this day and age, the family is under attack. There's a wiping away of genders, of roles, of solid family units. We see unisex toilets, kids self-identifying as the opposite sex, gender-neutral shopping sections, gender-neutral parenting, children practically dominating family lives, men with Peter Pan syndrome, right, <laughs> never growing up, the nanny state, aggressive women's movements, abusive fathers, multiple living partners, marriage redefined, marriage at its lowest level since 1895, with less than a quarter being religious religious weddings and designer babies are on the way. It's endless. Correct dynamics in the home and church are vital to build the foundations of relationships on between each other and our Lord Jesus. But are we orderly? We're in dismay at the world. We almost expect it of the world. But is the bride of Christ orderly? Consider with me this scenario. If Jesus personally walked into your church or Bible study and commanded you to, say, build an orphanage in the, in the local park, for example, imagine if he said, you, Mark, you will be the project manager. You, Daniel, the architect, you two provide food and drinks. You three assist Mark in the scheduling. You two as structural engineers. You, you five work as laborers. And you guys provide the legal work. Right? And then he said, Get on with it. I'll be back soon. Now, I'm sure everyone would follow his word and be beautifully ordered without grumbling or questioning. I'm sure of it for the first few days, right? <laughs> and then over time, if Jesus didn't return for months, we would start complaining. Some would argue that they're gifted at drawing. Why can't I be an architect too? Daniel agrees. He's not up for the role and allows others to take over. To be honest, I'm a pretty good cook. Maybe I should bring the food. Yeah, but Jesus said, I know, but I have a culinary education and a quite light to. In fact, I think he's calling me. Well, okay, we'll swap. Hey, hang on a minute. Why, why is Mark the project manager? Did Jesus choose him because he's the tallest or something? Tall people aren't more valuable than short people. And besides, I'm better than him. Why have they got it easy? Only providing food while we're laboring, some ask. This doesn't seem equal or fair. We should be able to do whatever we're good at or gifted at. Did Jesus really say? Maybe he meant something different when it comes to the ordering of activities. <laughs> Time tests hearts? Is the ordering of our activities God-driven or pride-driven? 
We recall the academic term, the economy of the Trinity, meaning the ordering of activities of the Trinity. The Father, Son and Spirit are equally God, but the Son and Spirit are subordinate in their roles. The theological term is ontological equality, but economic subordination, equal in being, but subordinate in role. We can rightly say there is an economy of man. For Christians, the New Testament highlights a home economy and a church economy. Now, I believe the UK church is crippled primarily for two reasons. Firstly, its message, which we're dealing with in long form through this series. And secondly, the economy of the body of Christ, which we begin to major on today. God's ordained ordering of activities of his people. I truly believe the message within this two-part session is the most pressing for the UK church at this hour. Now, if you want a 20-minute TED Talk that will galvanise your already entrenched thoughts on home and church order, then this isn't for you. But if you seriously want to grapple with this subject of the economy of man, then put aside this time today and in the next session shortly after. Rather than beginning with Adam and Eve, God could have created billions of people instantaneously without male or female, without multiplication, but he chose so that we understand order, husband, wife, children, corporate gathering, societal composition, so that we understand love, to have intimacy with another person, to know what it is to love those who are subordinate to you and those you are subordinate to, what it is to love your own image bearer, so that we can begin to understand the sovereignty of God and the, the true essence of God, to choose a spouse is to choose who you love and dwell with and so much more. His divine ordering is a blessing that teaches us about who God is. The alternative is that we're like robots. No sexes, no distinctions, little if any intimacy, lemmings, taking turns at everything, chanting, we are fair and equal. <laughs> Prager says the Bible has a theocentric, God-centered and anthropocentric, man-centered view of the world. Man are the focus players in the biblical worldview. Players God places great value on in all our differences and distinctions. Before we turn to the passages on home and church order, let's underline and refresh our frame of the human players and ask, what is man? Now, firstly, all come from one couple represented by one man, Adam, the head of the human race. We are made in the image of a relational God. Man was created to be in relationship with God and each other and his creation. And in the beginning, there was perfect harmony between them. When God created Adam, he has you and I in mind. Man is given gifts, art, music, humour and so forth for relational gain, to commune with God and fulfil his commission. The status of man is priestly and regal. As image bearers, we reflect the communicable attributes of God. In terms of reflecting physical appearance, it is blasphemous to say that man wasn't always upright. 
Respect can be earned from another, but as image bearers, a certain respect and dignity is inherent because man is uniquely endowed with infinite worth. To respect the innate worth of a man is to respect God. For that reason, although estranged from God through sin, we have been given the gift of prayer for personal communication and as a means God uses to bring about changes in the world. God desires fellowship with us and prayer reveals our trust in God, which in turn develops in the process. It, it gives glory to God and it means that God involves us in activities of eternal significance. Relative to other creatures, man is ordered lower than the angels. We read, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Psalms 8, 5 to 8. This is speaking about man's right to rule creation, but it's also a messianic text. There is a hierarchy within the cosmic kingdom. We have God above all, angels beneath, man beneath the angels, animals beneath man, and then plants. Hierarchy is biblical. Order requires hierarchy, yet hierarchy doesn't necessarily mean inferiority. Angels, though above man, are not deemed more valuable. Animals, on the other hand, who are classed below man, are inferior. Animals, who we can label as players within the biblical worldview, do not have moral free will. Animals do not have a priestly nature. They do not minister to God, but rather are morally innocent objects to offer. They do not see beauty or majesty or have a sense of awe or appreciation like man. They do not marvel at a waterfall and rolling hills. They don't love or relate to God to ponder existence, make music, complex technology, nor write philosophy. They find food and shelter. <laughs> Animals are created for man. Without mankind, God would not have created just a world with animals. They have no intrinsic value outside the context of God creating man in his own image. Wenham states that breath, the ability to breathe, is a key characteristic of animal life as opposed to plant life. Plants cannot be recognised as players within a biblical worldview. Although in English, um, in the English language, we use terminology such as a plant's die or a dead plant, but they're not living in, in, in the same sense. The Bible refers to plants that wither or fade, but not die. Leviticus is explicit. For the life of a creature is in the blood. Without blood, it's not considered alive. And now the medical field recognises that, yes, the life of a creature is determined by its blood, which constantly provides every cell with nourishment. Plants are not alive in a biblical sense. Furthermore, plants are not souls or have a spirit. Man is made up of body, the visible, and spirit, the invisible, the binding of which is determined by God.
Ecclesiastes refers to this moment that the spirit and matter come together in the womb. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Ecclesiastes 11.5 Angels are spirit, animals are body with the breath, plants have neither spirit or body, but man uniquely has both spirit and body. Now disagreement emerges over the meaning of soul and spirit. Some argue for a trichotomy whereby man is made of uh, body, soul and spirit uh, and although popular few if any scholars now take this position. Soul and spirit is used interchangeably in scripture and for that reason most hold a dichotomy view of man as I do. The way I understand it is that each of us our souls in that we have unique identities which is spirit your unique soul is spirit placed within your body now few people would argue for monism whereby the soul spirit is just an expression of the person um, the scriptures are clear that our, that our spirits continue to to exist after death once you're conceived you exist forever which is why God has put eternity into man's heart as it says in Ecclesiastes 3. Death is the separation of spirit from body but you continue in some form in spirit until you receive your glorified body or corrupted body for the kingdom or Gehenna. Man is aware of and fears death unlike animals. Only God knows our thoughts and therefore Jesus did too. Fallen angels may try to persuade they can enter us, but no player beyond the heavenly throne can know our thoughts. No player can take your hand controller, right? Because of our image-bearing status, mankind is sacred to God. Animals and nature are not. Contrasting the pagan worldview that believed nature ruled over man, the biblical worldview declares that man is to rule over nature. What separates us from animals is justice, the sense of morality. To say evolution is true is to blur distinctions between man and animals. In the age to come, it appears that the hierarchy is altered somewhat as we are to judge angels, it says in 1 Corinthians 6. So the order will be God, below which is man, below which is angels, and then animals and plants, though we can now remove plants. Or we could say God the Father, below which is God the Son, who became man, man ruling alongside him, angels beneath, and then animals. Unlike the angels, sinful humans have been given the chance to be redeemed so that God's mediatorial kingdom would be restored. And this reveals astounding mercy on man. Man is given free choice with personal responsibility for each decision. Free choices that exist not in a vacuum outside of God's providence, but in a sense that has real consequences and eternal significance. God demands that we abide in him and his law and order. Any child that receives love without an expectation of character development grows into a narcissist. 
His gifts expect a return, yet we have will to choose how we respond to that expectation. If we obey God's word, he will bless us in our life and will reward us in eternity. If we disobey God's word, he will discipline, even chastise, in order to correct our path and, if unrepentant, will punish us in eternity. We instinctively know this to be true in ordinary life. If, for example, we live uh, you know, good, honest lives, we love our family, we work hard and so forth, things will generally go well for us. If, for example, we are gluttonous with regards to food, we become overweight, causing everything from uh, discomfort to health issues. Now, of course, wealth and influence is not an indication of righteousness. Indeed, those things can be a curse. And we see through the lives such as Job that bad things happen to upright people and we rebuke the prosperity gospel. But there is a general truth in, in the connection between following his law and things going well. Through a matrix of events, God causes good and bad circumstances that impact our lives to test and build character. We are to obey God and trust in his sovereign control, exercising wisdom, avoiding unnecessary danger, but being motivated to act in faith. The only thing that God cares about is our character, not man-acknowledged achievement, status, or influence. Divine image reflecting character. Sin is our personal and corporate downfall. The creation account reveals that man was given dominion of the earth. From Adam's sin onwards meant that we have handed the throne over to Satan. But the mandate remains as the Psalms attest. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Psalm 115 verse 16. Earth is the domain of man and not heaven. Heaven is never described in the Bible as the long-term home for man. To rule and subdue as a priestly and kingly people, man acts as God's mediator, his image-bearing representative. The universal kingdom is God's absolute sovereign and eternal rule over creation, and then within it is the mediatorial kingdom of earth. Now, we may fight any kind of representation of God on earth and thereby resisting his mediatorial kingdom, but we are forever confined to God's universal cosmic kingdom. As we operate the commission in an orderly manner, we point to the one that we reflect. The order of the mediatorial kingdom on earth should reflect his heavenly kingdom. Our order should reflect his. God rules the universal cosmic kingdom. He presides over the heavenly kingdom. He made the sun and the moon to rule the day and night. They keep to the creation ordinances and man then must rule the earth within the law and order of God. Man has been given the task to encounter, discover and work the earth in a way that will glorify God. That includes agriculture, farming, architecture, technology. We're not just supposed to be static and look at it, but make with it complex, beautiful, God-honouring structures and programmes with global reach. 
It's not achievement for the purposes of glorifying ourselves or competing with one another, but spreading the glory of God through word and deed. From the beginning, man is called to multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because a kingdom requires a people and the task is bigger than them. While active in daily living, the foundational mission of man is preserving God's divine order and distinctions. We can make either error of being underactive but preserving or being active but not preserving. In our activity of subduing and filling the earth, we must preserve God's divine order and distinctions. So that's the baseline of man as players within the biblical worldview. As we look at the economy of man, we're going to look at the classic New Testament passages within the full scope of Scripture. Having recently studied Genesis 1 and 2, we'll refresh our thoughts on the original economy of man, the order in Eden pre-fall. Uh, we'll briefly skim a stone over the mosaic economy of man, the order of the patriarchs and, and Israelites, and then we'll concentrate more fully on the New Testament or New Covenant economy of man as described and prescribed by Jesus and the apostles and lastly of which I've never heard anyone include in the subject when preaching on the matter the future kingdom economy of man. The future order will help us underline whether principles the New Testament authors specified are universal or otherwise. By looking backwards and forwards, building a pattern from creation through redemptive history and the age to come, the wisdom and the hermeneutical logic of the apostles' teaching will be shown. Each text stands by itself, but it makes more sense when placed within the grand narrative. Scripture helps interpret scripture. We will demonstrate there is a continuity of leadership principles from beginning to end. Principally, there are two sides of the debate within Christianity with a, a sliding scale between them. One side is egalitarianism. Now, the broad meaning of egalitarianism is that men and women are equal. Now, within a, a Christian context, egalitarians believe both men and women are equal and God does not intend distinctions between men and women when it comes to leadership. Now, on the other side is complementarianism. Complementarians affirm the broader meaning of egalitarianism, that men and women are equal, and yet propose the two sexes are designed in a way to complement each other. And so God has ordained roles according to sex so that his mission is accomplished efficiently, orderly, promoting good spiritual health for all, reflecting the image of God all to the glory of God. As I say, there is a, a scale whereby some will say they're complementarians and another would say, well, you can't be a complementarian uh, if you believe this or that. So there are softer and harder versions of each. Now, I will argue for complementarianism uh, proper, which will become clear. Now, what I would say is that if you tend to side with egalitarianism, please be patient with this subject and hear me out for the remainder of today and part two. I'm going to address most objections and I may bring up things you've never considered. Now, because 
complementarianism has been softened and softened. Uh, ben Zorns has coined a new term, econ I can't pronounce it, economitarian. Yeah. And I'll come back to this uh, nearer the end because I think the term is very helpful uh, if I can't pronounce it. The original economy of man. Adam is the head. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Adam was placed in the garden before Eve was created. Then Adam is given a mission to work or serve and keep or guard the garden. We recognised in video 6 this word pair is used throughout scripture in reference to the priests in temple service. Alone, Adam was given the commandments and made clear the consequences of disobeying his law in the land. In Genesis 2, Adam is ordained the kingly leader and priest of the garden. God lays on him the instruction, responsibility, accountability. Remember, this is pre-fall and before the creation of woman. Man was created originally as a priestly people, but as a priestly people, roles are assigned. The pattern of male authority continues. In an act of exercising his authority as head of the human race, God gave Adam alone the duty of naming the family kinds of animals and birds, and none would be a suitable helper fit for him. Rather than from the dust, God made the woman from the man and for the man as the glory of the man. Now, while the woman is not independent from the authority of the man, so too the future of man would not be independent from woman, being born of them. Now, if anyone today finds offence in the title helper for the woman, one might consider that God refers to himself as helper in the person of his spirit. God then brought her to the man in Genesis 2.22 and he named her woman because she was taken out of man. Immediately after the fall, we see how Adam called his wife's name Eve, Genesis 3.20. As God exercised his authority in the calling of Adam, Adam was given the duty to exercise his authority in the calling of his wife. There is a continuity of leadership from pre to post fall. While Adam was given the authority over both animals and his wife, animals are his inferior, the woman is his equal, taken from his side. In Genesis 5 we read, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Adam is the same word as man in Hebrew, distinguished from woman. God not only names Adam, he named the entire human race after Adam. In the garden, God joined the man and woman together in lifelong marriage of physical, spiritual and emotional unity to become one flesh. In the understanding they were both made in the image of God, the man did not feel superior 
or more important. And the woman did not feel inferior or less important. They would share love, communication, mutual honor to one another in their interpersonal relationship. Today, less people are getting married. The sex they have does not resolve the tension of loneliness. By creating one woman for this one man, not another man or a community of people or children, but two in complementary bond. One man and one woman in loving relationship is the primary human ideal. For man to function correctly, we need to be in relationship with God and we need to be in relationship with people within his ordering. In Genesis 2.24, Moses as narrator transitions in an application of universal significance. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The man leaves his family to rejoin the woman. He grows up to become a man, leaving the dependence of his parents. Marriage matures a person like nothing else so that character is shaped for orderly function. Marriage reveals your flaws and it humbles your reactions. As if ignoring Genesis 2, egalitarians will point to Genesis 1 and say both were given dominion. Well, as a team, they were given dominion. The two became one and they were given complementary roles and complementary natural gifts according to their sex. Man as mission leader, woman as helpmate. Now, if you were to ask, what does that company do? Right? They might reply, well, they manufacture cars. No one thinks there isn't a board and laborers and apprentices. As a team, they manufacture cars. If an announcement was made in your church that a family is moving to Africa on mission, no one thinks the kids will be preaching. As a family team, they have a mission. God-given roles help accomplish God-given mission. From the singular man, God created a plurality of male and female as an expression and reflection of his plurality. Mankind was made to reflect the unity, one God, and diversity, three persons of God. Humanity, unity, is made up of male and female diversity. Being made in his image means a natural representative of God who is spirit. Man is made in the image of a king and therefore is king-like. Being made in the likeness of God, we are sons representative of the father. Being made in the image and likeness means that man is both king and son whose spirit is eternal. This means that man is well designed to rule the mediatorial kingdom on behalf of God for eternity. Male and female were created for harmonious relationship, equality in personhood and importance, and difference in role and authority to reflect the Trinity. In no way does Role or position in, in hierarchy determine one's value, worth or love and standing before God. Adam and Eve would reproduce spiritual and natural working together. Their children would be image bearers of Adam and Eve and commit to the purposes of the kingdom. 
Among other things, they were to train them in the order and correct function, handing them the mission to multiply and spread the glory of the Lord across the earth. As the population grew, these family teams would bear fruit and expand and labour corporately for godly gain. If marriage doesn't mature you enough, having children should. (laughs) Western culture views a sliding scale from male to female. The female end is pictured the brightest and the male end labelled toxic. According to a neo-progressive worldview, which changes faster than a TikTok video, sex is not the same as gender, and so it can get over complex. But to keep it simple, it's a sliding scale whereby anyone can position themselves anywhere they like on any given day, regardless of biology or past experiences, emotion or external or self-labeling. The biblical worldview pictures man with two distinct sexes determined at birth. We could draw them as two distinct circles whereby what it means to be a man or woman cannot overlap, but our broader nature, gifting, attributes, etc. overlaps somewhat. Academics may publish a bell curve diagram because men and women share way more than we differ, but differ we do. Now some will say yes, but some women are physically stronger than some men. Sure, but the vast majority of the time, men are stronger than women. The strongest woman will never be the strongest man. Some women are taller than men, but most of the time men are taller than women and so forth. Men and women are equally intelligent, but their nature determines obvious differences. And efforts to unravel these distinctions go against God's divine order. We know this, but in a culture like the West, we have to spell it out. Men and women are physically different. There is a reason men and women don't compete against each other in the Olympics, in boxing, or even darts. That They play a different number of sets in tennis. Men and women are biologically different. Men and women have different alcohol safe limits and eating calorie guides. At least they did until recent equality movements got involved. The fuel running around our bodies, the sex steroid hormones differ. Pound for pound, uh, men have uh, 15% more muscle mass. Females have 2x chromosomes in their pair, uh, while uh, men have uh, 1x and and one Y chromosome. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden. It was obvious to them that they were different and they were not trying to hide their differences. They were designed to fit together, to work together as one. Leadership is primarily a male trait. Why are the majority of head chefs men? It's not because they're better cooks, it's because they are designed to lead. There is an authority, a business aspect at play. For the same reason, there are 94 male CEOs of FTSE 100 companies. Men and women differ mentally. Men tend to be preoccupied with the macro and women with the micro. My wife tends to think about what snacks that the kids might need for tomorrow's journey, whereas I'm pondering if the roof will last in the next 10 years, right? It's why women are more likely to be teachers and nurses and child therapists. They're more likely to vote for candidates that address a perceived suffering of citizens. As Prager notes, 
they're more likely when witnessing a car accident to notice the pain and suffering of those hurt than to notice the make and the color of the car. Men tend to be drawn to objects and things, and women tend to be interested in relationships and faces, which is why boys tend to be drawn to toy cars and girls tend to be drawn to dolls. This isn't social engineering because studies have shown the same to be true with animals. Both the macro and the micro are equally important. If my wife didn't think of the snacks, the kids would be left hungry. And if I didn't think of the roof, they might not have anywhere, anywhere to sleep in the, in, in the years to come. My wife and I were so different. She's petite. I'm six foot three, a 17 stone, and benched over 100K since you know, my early 20s. <laughs> we have different interests and so many things, but it works, right? Complementary balancing differences. This is where many people object. Yes, but some women and some men, yes, there are, there are two broad camps that overlap. And this is why I think Jordan Peterson has shot to fame because he's, brill he's brilliantly articulated what is obvious to those without contemporary cultural brainwashing. Stanford University has an excellent article by Bruce Goldman, which I will include in the description about the growing pile of evidence that there are inherent differences in how men's and women's brains are wired and how they work. Uh, sex differences in two-month-old infants are notable in things such as spatial visualization, a facial response, environmental response, and language. Diane Halpern, a PhD, uh, past president of the American Psychological Association, in her preface of her acclaimed academic text, Sex Differences in Cognitive Abilities, she writes, at the time, it seemed clear to me that any between-sex differences in thinking abilities were due to socialization practices, artifacts, and mistakes in the research, and bias and prejudice. After reviewing a pile of journal articles that stood several feet high and numerous books and book chapters that dwarf the stack of journal articles, I changed my mind. Even things like navigation studies demonstrate men rely on dead reckoning, calculating a distance and direction, whereas women rely on landmarks. The sexes differ hugely when it comes to depression, addiction, and mental disorders. It's a well-known fact that men outnumber women in the STEM fields, STEM science, technology, engineering, and maths. And the evidence bulldozing cultural rhetoric shows that interest, preference of career, and the inherited biological component determine the vast gulf between the sexes. Because more people that are interested in things become engineers. Men are interested in things. Interest due to the biological component controls career choice. Goldman says, brain imaging studies demonstrate real, if not always earth-shaking brain differences. They differ in temperament, cross-culturally. Men are more aggressive, which is why 9 out of 10 in prison are men. And while women are more likely to attempt suicide, men are much more likely to succeed. Men are more pragmatic. Women are more agreeable and more likely to experience anxiety and emotional pain and are more compassionate. There is 
Example after example, evidence upon evidence, rhetoric won't do, the data is in. Women are more sensitive, including spiritually. When you couple that with agreeableness, they're more likely to believe what is true, but also more likely to believe what is false. Their spiritual awareness is one of the factors that the church in the UK has twice as many women. Men and women differ anatomically, physio physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. It's why most women are attracted to more intelligent, taller, stronger, more dominant, more productive men. Likewise, men are attracted to caring, compassionate, fit and curvy, supportive women. As far from the Garden of Eden society travels, these truths remain. When given the opportunity, we fall into design. Today, cultural influences are pushing for equality of outcome, the same number of men and women in the STEM fields and so forth. It's funny how they never push for equality of outcome when it comes to bin collection. Um, but when, when countries strive for equality of opportunity, which gives freedom of choice, opposed to equality of outcome, which attempts to, to force a 50-50 split in, in certain fields, we discover that when given the opportunity, we fall into original design. Answering questions at the Oxford Union, Jordan Peterson said, in places like Scandinavia, where a tremendous amount of effort has been put into flattening the socio-cultural landscape, there is still a preponderance of male engineers, and there is still a preponderance of female nurses. And no matter how much sociological gerrymandering goes on, those statistics remain quite intractable. And he says that when you compare countries around the world, the social constructionists, their prediction being that as more cultures become more egalitarian, men and women become more the same because it's environmental. But he continues, that isn't what happens. Exactly the opposite happens. As you flatten out the social cultural landscape, men and women become more different. We are not to blur distinctions. We flourish best when we recognize equal and infinite worth and we don't hide the differences or blur the distinctions. The equality movement is an attack on ordained order and economy of man. It preaches a moral order that is kinder than God and it's a lie. So in terms of the original design and economy of man, before woman was made, God gave to the man the instruction to work and to keep it as priest in charge. The rules are commandments and responsibility and accountability with consequences, the authority to name all animals. God made the woman as the gift helper. God brought her to him and he named her in an expression of authority. Adam is the head of marriage, the priest of the garden sanctuary and head of the human race. Today, gender distinctions are offensive to many, but from the creator's perspective, gender neutrality is offensive to him. The glory of God is revealed through two complementary genders. 
Okay, let's look at the Old Testament or the mosaic economy of man. Even if we backtrack a little to the days of Noah, the pattern of male leadership continues as Noah is chosen for the great mission and appointed leader of the new world. The Bible doesn't even mention Noah's wife's name or his son's wife's names for that matter. There was only eight of them, but it doesn't name them. Adam and Eve's daughters were not we're not mentioned by name either. Is the Bible sexist? Is God sexist? No. Following the pattern of male leadership, Abraham was chosen as the father of the nation that would become the vehicle to restore the earth. I have made you a father of many nations, Genesis 17.5 says. Paul, who quotes this verse, says it's still true and will be true. Sarah would call Abraham Lord. Was she oppressed? Far from it. She was provided for, protected, given a covering. When Hagar, the Egyptian servant who mothered Ishmael, Abraham's son, ran away because of Sarah's harsh treatment, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Genesis 16, 9. This is woman submitting to woman. Do egalitarians pick up on that one? In fact, Hagar's, Hagar's response is truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. She counted the Lord's command to return to submission back under the covering as God watching out for her. Now, although we see examples of polygamy, it's clear from the outset that God's way means one man and one woman. Now, because of war, uh, women would outnumber men. And so a man pr protecting, providing for more than one woman was allowed in these circumstances. God then chose Isaac and Jacob, who had uh, 12 sons, which became the leaders, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Following the pattern of male leadership, Moses was chosen as leader and his brother head of priests. Now, Moses was chosen for his gift of speaking, right? <laughs> no, he was slow of speech, it says in Exodus 4, which is why he didn't want to step up initially. God doesn't go for the obvious pick. Equally, he doesn't say, well, your wife could be co-leader and she can speak for you. No, Aaron was chosen to assist in communication. His ways are not ours. God killed the firstborn male of every beast and person of Egypt. And then God consecrated all firstborn male people and male animals of Israel. In Exodus 20, God appeared in a thunderous cloud and the people of Israel were afraid. They said, like, Moses, you speak for us, but not God in case we die. <laughs> you see, it's much better having a human accountability partner than God. It's easier, it's less fearful to have a direct, you know, human covering than directly with God. God is all-knowing and scary when you've done wrong. Human coverings are a blessing. In Exodus 24, the pre-incarnate Jesus eats and drinks with the 70 elders of Israel upon the mountain, obviously all men. In Exodus 32, 3,000 men died as they were held accountable for the golden calf. 
When it comes to the ordering and economy of man according to the law, the instruction given by God to Moses, uh, apart from Genesis in Exodus 6, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron details the heads of their father's houses. Uh, fathers lead the home and the genealogy focuses on the male lineage. In Exodus 18, we learn how Moses' uh, father-in-law gave good advice to look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. Fathers of homes would decide household matters. Family disputes would be sent to the male authority, starting at the one in charge of ten. If matters were very great, they go all the way up to the, to the super chief of thousands, and if of national import to Moses, the national leader. Now, we tend to kind of separate this, the spiritual aspect from authority, saying that church leaders should be spiritual, um, but, but not necessarily the chiefs in charge of the nation. The Mosaic law requires men who fear God. The two are not separate. Now, some may argue God was dealing with the people of the world, and so he had to start somewhere and kick off with a patriarchal system, even though it's broadly wrong. And that was then, now is different. He's had to slowly lead mankind to the progress of today, a trajectory hermeneutics. But you forget that God has just pulled this people out of Egypt where they were slaves, right, into the desert where they have no land, no law, no nothing. He makes a nation from scratch and he can choose any way that he wanted. And he chose to give them this good law and this good and holy system to live by as an expression of his universal law. There is a continuity of the principles, including male headship. He doesn't choose any men, but able men of good character who fear God. The priests who worked in the tabernacle were, of course, male. God, uh, via Moses, told the people of Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19.6 as a priestly people, they all have roles to play. A priestly people does not mean they all take part in temple duties. It means as one, they minister to God. Not to mention uh, the line of kings that will lead to Jesus as king. That he chooses men does not mean that women are of less value. That he chooses Israel does not mean that Gentiles are of less value. The chosen men take on the burden of leading the home, the area, the priestly duties, the nation. The chosen nation takes on the burden of leading the nations. Now, women could learn, but men led and taught. In Deuteronomy, we learn that Moses told them, Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 31.12 Women and children can and should learn from the scriptures so that they obey. It would be the men who teach. Nehemiah 8 is an example of expository teaching. 
They asked for uh, the man Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses uh, before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform and on his left and right were other leaders. He opened the book and he explained the book, after which the Levitical priests would explain the scriptures in smaller groups. The writings and prophets are congruent. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 12.4. We read of examples where God uses women. Uh, Miriam, who watched over her brother Moses in the basket. Uh, Rahab at Jericho. Uh, Ruth, who chose to support Naomi and follow the God of Israel. Esther, who through submission to a foreign king helped save the people of Israel. And Deborah, who God delivered messages through to judge Israel. And we'll come back to Deborah because she's often used as a common objection. These women stand as models of faith and courage and leadership for other women. The vast majority of prophets in the Bible are men, yet several women are called a prophetess. Uh, Miriam in Exodus, Deborah in Judges, uh, Huldah, 2 Kings, uh, Isaiah's wife, uh, Isaiah 8, uh, Anna in Luke 2, and uh, Philip's four daughters in Acts 21. Now, prophecy and authority of a people are not the same thing. Prophecy and teaching is not the same thing. I'm astounded when I see qualified leaders conflate the two. To prophesy is to deliver a prophecy, a message from God. Teaching involves interpretation of the word of God and explaining it to the people, which is why God could use Balaam's donkey to deliver a message. Right? The donkey spoke the word of God, but could the donkey interpret the message and teach it to the masses? No, it's not called to. Isaiah and his wife would prophesy, but it is Isaiah as the head who writes down the message. All 39 books of the Old Testament are written by men. Now we're just skimming a stone over the surface here, but when God picks Abraham, it's not about Abraham, but about God and his plans. When God picks the Levites over the other tribes, it's not about the Levites, it's about God. When God picks Jacob over Esau, it's not about favoritism to Jacob, it's about God and his plans for a nation and his merciful instruction in the process. In fact, God chose Jacob over Esau in the womb, so it wasn't Jacob's gifting or because of works but because of him who calls. When God picks certain men over other men and women for certain roles it's not about those certain men it's about God and his ordained plans and purpose. So get over yourself. <laughs> Now let us turn to the new covenant economy of man. Do the principles of order and economy of man continue? In this session, we'll turn to home and societal order. Now in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul connects the order within the home with the order of the Trinity. 
Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. We will look at the rest of the passage when we come to church order in the next session. Now, Paul's traditions are important. Ours, not so much. He is an apostle appointed by Christ to deliver true teaching. What he says goes. Now, head means authority. The head, the topmost of what is beneath. They are the representative or face of the family or institution. Now, some have argued that it could mean source rather than authority. Uh, Thomas Schreiner says that scholars aside from himself have shown that the meaning authority is indisputable in a number of passages, while the meaning source is never certainly attested. We use the word head in the English language today, don't we, to describe someone's position, a head teacher, for example. The reason men are designed taller than women is because they are the head of the home, a head above. The head signifies authority. Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, that a man must always be taller than a woman in marriage, but that is the general design. The man's head is above the woman. Just as our heavenly father has authority over the son, the husband has authority over his wife. The principles of the original order and broadly patriarchal order continue. Grudem explains, the husband's role is parallel to that of God the Father, and the wife's role is parallel to that of God the Son. Moreover, just as the father and son are equal in deity and importance and personhood, so the husband and wife are equal in humanity and importance and personhood. That he draws parallels with the Trinitarian relationship shows it's not cultural or as a result of the fall. In marriage, we have distinct persons, equal in essence and being, and at the same time, their functions differ. Each authority acts as a covering, protecting those under them. The father takes the family under his wings, so to speak, reflecting the heavenly father who, in Psalm 91, it says, Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. We can illustrate the order as follows. Wives under the husbands who are under Christ, who are under God the Father. Our priorities should be God first, our husbands, our wife, and then children. And the world has turned it upside down, that it's children first, then the wife, the husband, and God last of all. We see kids ruling the home. Are they happy? No, they grow up spoiled brats. We see women whipping their husbands, right? Are the wives happy? No, they're doing everything and they're exhausted playing every role and then they resent the emasculated man. I read a study that ironically revealed feminists prefer masculine men. We think that by reversing the order, the children and women will get the better deal. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.
Again, this has nothing to do with equality of worth. Children aren't of less worth than parents. Wives aren't of less worth than husbands, hence the Trinity. Right? It means if done God's way, children get the best deal, and then wives, right? and then husbands who must serve all the family, and Jesus gets a worse deal, having been nailed to a cross, and God the Father watched his son tied naked to a cross to die. When you think of hierarchy, imagine the ones that the top, the ones who you submit to, are the ones who are to live sacrificially. And objections for not following Paul, who followed Christ, is because men have trampled over women for thousands of years. Well, that's not biblical. No one is arguing for that pattern. Since the fall of man, women have become manipulative or doormats, and men have become passive or domineering. And every man and woman tends to lean one way or the other. And it's good to know which way that you tend to lean so that you can perpetually correct it. But just because we've got it wrong so often, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't throw out God's inspired word with thousands of years of us getting it wrong. Get it right. Doing it wrong is not biblical. So don't find your own way because because other people didn't do it God's way. Right? We didn't give up when Adam sinned and say, well, forget it. We can't do it. Right? So the Colossians, Paul gives instruction for home and we could say industrial order that comes under the wider family network. Before verse 18, chapter 3 is about putting on the new self in Christ and then Paul transitions into how that new self should be ordered. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. At no point do the scriptures say, husbands, submit to your wives. It always says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. And husbands are warned, do not be harsh with them. If they are being harsh, they are not being loving. If they are being harsh, they are not being biblical. So children come under the covering of both parents, obeying them. There is a continuation from the original order where a man will leave his father and his mother for marriage, implying previously being under his parents. A continuation from the law to obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, as it says in Deuteronomy 21. And the fifth commandment for all to honour your father and your mother in Exodus 20. The writings too are replete with the same principle. Fathers are specifically warned, do not provoke your children. If they are provoking, they are not being biblical. Now, the naming of the child, and in some cases of adoption, when the parents rename the child, it's a demonstration of one's authority over the person. Even today, traditionally, the wife takes the husband's surname, and then the child takes on the husband's family name too. They are renamed into the family name, all under the covering and mission of the father. Children aren't less valued in the family than parents, are they? In fact, they are treated 
better, just as it's supposed to be with the wife. They are not to be treated as equal, but better than that. They are to be protected and looked after. Who gets the best deal? The child, then the wife, then the husband. Children are accountable to parents, wife to husband, husband to Christ. When it comes to home order, I'd say it's rather more fearful to be held accountable directly to Christ than your spouse or parents. The gift of a child within marriage draws parallels with the role of the Holy Spirit. The father of the home represents God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. The wife who submits to the husband, like that of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who submits to God the Father. Then the child who is under the authority of the husband and wife, like the Holy Spirit, the third person who is again equal in being, yet submits to God the Father and God the Son. For those who repel submission within home order must appeal to the triune God and his order and plead why it doesn't apply to them. Is it okay for the son to submit to the father but not for a wife to a husband? Most would agree that children should submit to parents and no one thinks that children are inferior in importance and personhood. Is it okay for God but not for you? Now, the word submit has negative connotations because those impositions of authority throughout history have abused their role. As the reactionary feminist movement increases by the day, we desperately need to grow godly men who, as Owen Strachan puts it, who stay instead of leaving, who lead instead of abdicating, who die to self instead of self-idolizing, who repent instead of excusing, who listen instead of ignoring, who fight instead of hiding, who pray instead of worrying, who rejoice instead of complaining, who act instead of stalling. Feminist movements are not the answer. Flipping biblical order is not the answer. Growing godly men who abide by biblical order is. Look to Jesus if you want to know what biblical manhood looks like. A man who lays down his life for his bride. He never throws her under the bus. He threw himself in harm's way, despised, rejected, afflicted, pierced, crushed to protect her. And yet the world has set up a straw man to paint biblical submission as something contrary to scripture. The English word submission should be a great word. The root word sub means below or under, a mission meaning a continuous work, uh, which is their duty to do. So those who submit are under the mission of your parents or your husband within the home setting. You're on the same team. The kids are under the mission. The wife is under the mission and the husband steers the mission from God with the help of his wife. It makes sense and we instinctively know because fairy tales based on you know, the idea of a big strong you know knight in shining armor of good character who picks up this sweet-natured dainty pretty girl rides off into the sunset now today we call that sexist maybe some of it was but it's why traditional disney films were so successful it appeals to nature and don't get me wrong, character, not physical strength, defines masculinity.
Paul continues the very next verse with, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Colossians 3, 22 to the first verse in chapter 4. What does bondservant mean? Now, some may refer to this as a slave-master relationship. Now, to be clear, slavery in the Greco-Roman first century world was an accepted norm, very different to American or modern slavery. It wasn't about race, skin colour or nationality and usually lasted under a decade when they would be set free and on occasion receive Roman citizenship. And they may have been able to save money and buy their freedom. Now, if a person could not pay their debts, they would sell themselves to the debtor in order to work for them until they paid it, which is why they were called bondservants. Now, some would be better off actually as bondservants than being free and poor. Now, of course, some would be abused, but abuse can happen in any relationship, which is why the Bible calls for proper ordering. Bondservants are to sincerely and heartily work and obey their masters, motivated by the Lord who will reward. Christ should be obvious in the bondservant's character, who may persuade other bondservants and even their master of their faith. Masters are warned to be just and fair, motivated by the fear of the Lord. Christ should be obvious in the master's character, who may, who may persuade other masters and their bondservants of their faith. We're already dead to self, so why does position matter? The bondservant is living for his inheritance to come, not his best life now. Christian order and the economy of man should be a witness. Again, there is a continuity of the principles of the ordering of bondservant-master relationship from the Mosaic law with character at the forefront. And if we follow the biblical pattern of authority and covering of those beneath, then masters should be far from oppressive or abusive, but a blessing. Now, you may well say, well, why wouldn't the master just let the bondservant go? Well, it may be right that he pays off his debt. And as the Old Testament law says, some bondservants may, wanted to have, may want to stay and remain under their master because of his kind treatment. He may have been given a wife right, and had children and built up his own family under the covering of the master and his family. Therefore, we have a covering of a master in heaven, we have earthly master, and then bondservant underneath. Don't get too caught up in the word bondservant. In the New Testament, those devoted to Jesus are referred as servants or bondservants of Christ. 
Everyone submits to someone. If you work for a company, you must submit to your head. If we didn't submit, work would be chaos, right? You might be better than your boss. You might be more capable or gifted, but you can't just assume his role. The same in the home, church, and society. Ephesians 5. This chapter is about walking in love and immediately before the focus passage, it speaks of giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, 20 to 21. I've heard a church leader say, see, everyone submits to everyone. No, that's not what it says and wouldn't make any sense. Paul is clear and consistent regarding the economy of man. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, verses 22 to 24. Paul compared the husband and wife relationship to that of the heavenly father and son. And now he is making the parallels between the church who is under the headship of Christ Jesus and the wife who is under the headship of her husband. The home order reflects the church order and vice versa. This is key to understand. We are given the picture of the church as a body whose savior is the head, Christ Jesus, and will be familiar with the picture of Jesus as the bridegroom and his people as his bride, which he then alludes to. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's verses 25 to 33. The apostolic writers appeal to the creation account, the original order of man for timeless truths. Jesus too quoted this same verse from Genesis 2 in affirming marriage. Adam's role was to live self-sacrificially, to protect his bride unto death. Adam failed, but Jesus succeeded, and it is him we follow as husbands. How did Christ love his bride, the church? He died for her. Sacrificial love. Victor Hamilton explains, the wife is to be subject to her husband, and the husband is to show nothing less than Christ-like, Calvary-like love 
to his wife. And it didn't stop there. Christ continues to sanctify, clean, wash her with the word. Husbands then are to love your wives, to nourish and to cherish them out of reverence for Christ, to bring out her splendor. Paul says that Genesis 2, the original order of man, speaks of a profound mystery. Adam and Eve, the man and woman, the husband and wife, becoming one flesh, points to Christ and his bride becoming one. The picture of the bridegroom and the bride and the picture of the body of Christ and Christ as the head are very much related. The former becomes the latter. The bride is united as one with Christ, her husband. The family should model the relationship of Christ and the church. The order and economy of the Christian family is a witness to the world. When the wife submits and serves her husband and the husband loves his wife sacrificially, we proclaim the gospel and the mystery of Christ and his church. A powerful witness that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, a multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language to God in one body through the cross. If the wife does not submit and the husband does not love, they are choosing not to be a witness as a family. The order and economy of man is not a small thing. Home order matters because the presentation of the gospel matters. It continues into the next chapter. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's the first three verses. Paul is explicitly showing the continuity of the principles of the law. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Verses four to nine. Such is the importance of the order of the home, including the child's position and the bond-servant-master relationship. Paul repeats himself. He's laying down the same principles in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Corinth. The unity and diversity of the Trinity is reflected in the relationships of mankind. And for this reason, God created not one, but two persons, diverse in nature, unified in marriage, to become one body, mind, spirit. Turn with me please to 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Time doesn't permit to break down each one of these passages, but in reading them in bulk, we'll piece together a collage of principles that speaks for itself. I'll slide in these verses too from 1 Corinthians 7 as they, they fit with the above. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He's transitioning here from talking about marriage. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price do not become bondservants of men, uh, verse 20 to 23, the end of which disproves what critics say about the Bible condoning slavery. Uh, the following chapter in uh, 1 Peter reads, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. If the wife's conduct models the gospel, she may win over the husband to Christ. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Talk about countercultural. It doesn't mean we can't wear nice things, but that we're not to place too high a value on it. External beauty is passing, beauty of character is surpassing. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Wives, do as Sarah did. <laughs> Why are we offended by Sarah calling her husband Lord and not by his name? Do children not call their parents mummy and daddy rather than by name? It's a respect and modelling of authority thing. Now, you are not required to call your husband Lord, but aiming for respectful and pure conduct before him. These are universal principles we're after, not cultural preferences. When Sarah called Abraham Lord, it meant something different than today. We don't call our boss Lord. It was normal in her culture. The principles of the order of the garden were the principles of the order of the patriarchs, whose principles should be the Christian order. Now, notice it says, wives submit to their 
own husbands, not any man or any husband. Also, this is an instruction to women, not to men. Men are not told to make their wives submit, which rules out abuse. It must be voluntary submission as the individual and church to Christ. He won't force us. We must come voluntarily. Likewise, he continues, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The world is offended by weaker vessel. Don't be like the world. <laughs> the vessel is the body, the external. She is not weaker with what is within, the intellect, the mind, the morality and so forth understanding, showing honour. Why? Because they are equal when it comes to inheritance. Authority in this life, you know, or the type of vessel does not indicate inheritance. If husbands are not understanding and showing honour, their prayers may be hindered. A stern warning. Now, what about those who do not get married? Very briefly, Paul spoke about this. He said, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8. Often, a single people have a higher calling because it is a harder road in some ways. Without a spouse or child, they are practically freer when it comes to mission. Uh, perhaps more prone to loneliness, you must lean into Christ more. Marriage should not become an idol. Jesus is enough. Jesus did not marry. His calling was the highest of all. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 17. Finally for today, societal order. The first seven verses of Romans 13 is the go-to passage. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Therefore, we have Christians who are under human institutions. Now, this does not mean unlimited obedience to the state. <laughs> now, generally, we are to be subjected to our authorities because generally, as this passage highlights, they reward good and punish evil. 
And this neatly ties in with the question of those who seriously abuse their position of authority. When we are obedient to our authorities, we are obedient to God. However, there are exceptions when disobeying our authoritative covering is necessary. Uh, this could have been the case with a bondservant to master in, in biblical times. Uh, this can be the case in marriage, uh, when under uh, abusive church leadership or national government. If a husband is seriously physically abusive, and the wife and children are in harm's way, then she's required to remove herself from the covering of him, seeking counsel at the earliest opportunity. Uh, Abigail in uh, 1 Samuel 25, who disobeyed her vile husband, is an example of the odd occasion uh, when you need to disobey in order to preserve life. Authority then is not limitless. If a father told his teenage son to rob a bank, right, you couldn't fault the boy for disobeying his command. We are commanded to obey your church leaders and submit to them in Hebrews 13. But if elders were caught embezzling thousands of pounds right, and they told you not to tell anyone, under God, you're required to disobey their command. So authority is not limitless. I would add that a commitment to a local church is not lifelong like marriage and therefore you know if if elders were physically or spiritually abusive you know doctrinally way off orthodoxy manipulative very domineering or you know or grievous sins have been committed and not dealt with um then with prayer it's probably time to to leave and carefully consider another we now circle back to romans 13. if the governing bodies of uh, the nation punish those who do good and reward those who do evil man is obliged to obey God over man so for example in Exodus 1 the Hebrew midwives directly disobeyed the king of Egypt who told them to kill the newborn sons and what is God's response because the midwives feared God he gave them families he rewarded them <laughs> In the book of Daniel, chapter 6, King Darius made a decree that no one could, could pray to any god or human being during the next 30 days. This law directly opposed God's law. Daniel, therefore, did not obey it. Not only that, he prayed on three occasions on his knees that day to the true God out of his window so that everyone could see his non-compliance with the decree. We know how God saved him from the king's punishment of the lion's den. Hebrews 11 speaks of the faithfulness of the parents of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Acts 5 is another good example. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. That's Acts 5, 28 to 29. In Matthew 2, the Magi did not obey King Herod and returned to tell him where to find Jesus. But after being warned by God in a dream, they avoided him and returned to their country by another route. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul escapes authorities. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from the window in the wall and slipped through his hands. When man's law directly contradicts God's law, we have a duty to disobey. So for example, we are required to pay taxes. If the government puts it up a little, we may not like it, but we have to follow orders. If government tells us that, we, that we're not allowed to read our Bible, then we must disobey. Man's authority is not unlimited and therefore submission is not unlimited, whether that be in the home, the church or state. Peter's first epistle agrees with Paul on submission to human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. We are all to submit to governing authorities, from abiding by the rules of the road when driving, to paying taxes, criminal laws, and this will maintain relative order of society and is God-given. Again, it doesn't say we must always submit under any and all circumstances. Daniel is an exemplar of submission to worldly kings while standing firm on God's word. Now, in summary of home and societal order, we have wives who submit to husbands, who submit to Christ, who submit to God the Father. We have children who submit to parents. We have bondservants who submit to master. We have church who submits to Christ. And we have Christians who submit to institutions. Why do egalitarians only focus on the submission of wives to husbands, never Christians to institutions, never bondservants to master, nor church to Christ, nor children to parents, or Christ to God the Father, only wives to husbands? It should tell you something. We must turn to the scriptures and not to culture for the correct ordering because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, as it says in Jeremiah 17. We are not to import from the world to solve the tensions between the sexes, but live out the scriptures for biblical manhood and womanhood and export that to the world. There is a reason the saying goes, women and children first. I don't look forward to the day when they say men first and women and children will have to wait. <laughs> There's a reason traditionally that men pay for the meal on the first date and that gentlemen open the doors for women and so forth. <laughs> now, here's something to think about. You may not understand your husband's decisions, but God could be, he could be guiding the man in a direction that you're not aware of, that maybe he's not aware of. God is guiding you both as individuals and he should take on board your wise counsel. But as the head of the home, the spirit could be leading him to a place that makes no sense at present. So have faith in your husband, encourage him, support him. He needs it. Authority means that someone or a group of people 
are in charge, without which relationships and institutions collapse. They, they may make decisions that, that you disagree with, but that doesn't mean that he always decides to go with what he wants, right? He should be looking to accommodate you and your ideas while looking to do things safely and within God's mission. For both the husband and the wife, a reminder that marriage is not primarily to make you happy, but to glorify God. Christians are constantly under the submission of one another. Right? It's about putting the needs of others first. It shouldn't be a big deal. The opponent of biblical submission is pride. When we get it right, the bride of Christ is beautifully in order, a splendor to the Lord. There is a natural break to leave it here today and then part two of the order and economy of man we're going to turn to church order. What was the pattern that Jesus established for us to follow? We'll look at all the so-called controversial passages at 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, the qualifications for elders and deacons at 1 Corinthians 11. What did Paul mean regarding heads and head coverings at 1 Corinthians 14, at 1 Peter 2 which is one of the most misinterpreted passages in Christendom will fire through many of the objections to male headship including Deborah, Junior, uh, Queens of Israel, is education and gifting a factor? How does culture play its part? Uh, what if men don't step up? Uh, Galatians 3 and more. And finally we'll take a look at the future economy when Jesus returns. This way we should build a clear image of the principles of the ordering of man as players within the biblical worldview. God bless Maranatha. See you soon. <laughs>